Happy President's Day, and welcome to Radioactive, a show for grassroots activists, community builders, punk rock farmers, and DIY creatives. I'm Laura Jones. Thanks for tuning in to a President's Day edition of the show, plugging into your community with us weeknights at 6. Coming up, we're going to go into the vaults for a conversation about presidents with the author of We the Presidents, How American Presidents Shaped the Last Century. Also going to share with you a chat I recorded earlier this year with Diana Green Foster, author of The Turnaway Study, 10 Years, A Thousand Women, and the Consequences of Having or Being Denied an Abortion. Critically important conversation, given what our own legislature is doing as we speak up on Utah's Capitol Hill when it comes to reproductive rights. But we're going to start with a conversation I had just a few days ago with Sheena Mead, CEO of the Clean Slate Initiative. She was in town to leverage the power of the NBA All-Star Weekend with her mission to help folks clean their records. And it's a very personal story, as you'll hear in this conversation. So let's get it started and pass that microphone. Sheena Mead, the CEO of the Clean Slate Initiative. So let's talk about how this came together, because Utah, I'm familiar with Noella Sudbury and her work, and y'all are connected, right? Yes, Noella is a great freedom fighter here in Utah, and one of our uh, dear partners in the Clean Slate movement, who was the second state to pass Clean Slate laws and get the policy enacted. So she's been a great partner, and one who has served as um, an advisor from the field on how to, how to do this work for other states that's been following behind. So let's talk about why there's this need. Let's let's go one on one on this for yes. folks who are unfamiliar with it or who don't happen to be caught up in the legal system until you are. You don't understand why a clean slate is needed. You really don't understand until you are, as you say, caught up in the system. Myself, I am someone who has an arrest and a conviction on my record. And even when I received my when I got arrested and received the conviction, I did not know until after I had served my time, paid off my fines and fees for a $100 bounce check that was returned. I did not know the consequences that came until after all that. I tell folks that I find throughout the field, through people's stories, through my own story, that people real time, excuse me, their real sentence did not start until after the fact. Because then I could not... Um, live where I want to live. I could not work where I want to work. I could not volunteer at my children's schools. And so having a clean slate means more than just a second chance. It's around opportunities and removing barriers for people to move on with their lives. So you're leveraging the NBA All-Star Weekend that we've experienced to shine a light on all of this. In fact, you are partnering with them. And as your press release to me said, you know, the Clean Slate Initiative is helping turn pain into purpose during this sports spectacular that was here in Utah. Yes, the NBA Social Justice Coalition, which is the social justice coalition of the NBA, they have been a great partner. They um, actually recently partnered and came to Utah, with the Utah Jazz, with the Clean Slate, Utah Clean Slate, with no Noella and Destiny, who's the executive director. And they held a big expungement clinic at the arena, which was a, such a great event. So to come back a month later to see all the work that they're doing in the city to amplify these issues of Clean Slate, voter rights, and all the other social impact issues is really exciting. Um you know, the NBA has done a great job um, lifting up these issues and now bringing it to Utah is in a state that has passed Clean Slate, the second state to pass a, a very um, common sense policy. I, I just think it's exciting that it's an opportunity to lift up some more issues as well. How does this build community when getting caught up in the justice system? However anyone arrives there, what that does to your sense of community after it tears apart community. Yeah. So Clean Slate can help repair that? Let me tell you what Clean Slate has been able to do. Bridging gaps, bringing communities together. Like in Utah, which you may know better than I do because you've been covering this issue for a while, which is great, is that it brought together the, the business, the, excuse me, the, um, the Chamber of Commerce, the business community, the faith community, the LBGTQ community, grassroots advocates, advocacy organizations, all around the issues of people having a second chance, around having a clean slate. So it brings the conversation into spaces that usually you won't have these conversations. And just seeing people as people and hum, hum, yeah. humanizing the issue. 
Well, you shared some of your own story, yeah. and I take it that's where this starts uh, and how you end up now as you know, leader of the Clean Slate Initiative nationwide. What is it that people don't understand who haven't been through what you've been through, what um, clients of the Utah Clean Slate Initiative have been through? What, do they don't, what don't we understand about those long-term dominoes, those consequences of being in the system? There's so many consequences. And, you know, one thing I think I need to let folks know that you could have been arrested but never convicted and still face the same barriers because the record pops up when you try to apply for a job. That data that follows us everywhere. That that background, right, it follows you. And so, you know, there's a thing called occupational license. So folks just get a job and they're like, okay, I get to apply for a job. Let's just say you do get into a profession. And you want to move up in that profession. Um, maybe you started out, let's just take something um, that's very common to us, working in a hair salon, right? You want to work in a hair salon, you may have started out just saying, hey, I'm going to be the assistant to the, 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 the main stylist, washing the hair or whatsoever. Now I want to go get my license to be a cosmetologist or a barber. In many states, you are precluded from getting an occupational license to do that because of an arrest or a conviction. Has nothing to do with your skill, your talent? No. As a stylist? No, nothing to do with it. And so, you know, I see um, as a national organization, I travel to Oklahoma. And in Oklahoma, to wash hair, you need a license. And when some women go to prison, this is the skill set that they gain. And they're like, when I get home, I know I'm not going to be able to find a job easily. So I'm going to start my own business. I'm going to just do hair. And they get home and realize they cannot even get clearance to wash hair. That just boggles the mind. It's so twisted. I'm going to teach you a skill while you're supposedly learning from your mistake, right? Yes. Being rehabilitated. And then you get out and it's like, ha ha, just kidding. Right. Is that what it feels like to folks you've met? I mean, yes. I mean, we hear about this even in California where the fire, like when they're using um, folks who are firefighters, prison firefighters. And I mean, these are people who are saving our lives and protecting our communities, our ancestors. whole TV show now about this. Yes. (laughs) And I mean, I think the laws have changed and come a long way since then. But they were coming home and and like, listen, I got this unique set of skills to save lives, to put out fires. And contribute to my community. And contribute to my community. And be a taxpayer, and yes, and then I'm shut out. So there's so many effects, but the thing is, I want folks to know, there are one in two children who has a parent that has an arrest or, or, or a conviction. And so that means it's impacting our, our children, our school systems, um, parent involvement, parent engagement. And once it impacts our, our loved ones, when you have one in three Americans who are impacted by this, that means these are people in our congregations, our synagogues, our children's schools, our, our, our loved ones um, is very close to home. And so that's why this issue is beyond politics. It's yeah. not a political issue because when one in three Americans mm-hmm. are impacted, that means my brother, my sister, my mother, my father, my loved one, my grandchild, my cousin, the people I went to college with, my sorority, fraternity members, they're impacted. Somebody's impacted. Yeah. And I think we don't realize it's so close to home and why it's such a common sense policy to allow people to have a second chance. We're talking with Sheena Mead, CEO of the Clean Slate Initiative on the national level and a leader with the National Basketball Social Justice Coalition's criminal justice efforts. And as we record this, NBA All-Star Weekend is going on. And yes. We're leveraging the, the spotlight of this weekend to shine a light on the Clean Slate Initiative. What do folks get wrong or misunderstand about your work? I think the first thing that people may misunderstand about our work is that we are just doing like a blanket Clean Slate policy to clear everyone's record. And that is very um, far from the truth. We do believe that people uh, should have a second chance and a chance of redemption. But across the country, there are laws that are already on the books that say, if you have been crime-free for a certain amount of time, you could be eligible to get your record cleared through a petition-based process. And what we do at the Clean Slate Initiative, we remove that process of trying to petition, um, having to file all the lengthy paperwork, we are tapping into the people who are already eligible under the law to get their record clears, and we're trying to automate it. Because right now there are 30 million people who are eligible and less than 10% has tried to tap in to get their record cleared. Okay, so I hear all these cries of there's no one available to work. How much of this is a problem 
for folks when you think of these stories about there's no one to work in my restaurant or there's 70 million people who are probably ready to get back to work so there's 70 to 100 million people um, in the country who has a record Mm -hmm. or an arrest and many of those people are in the workforce Mm -hmm. but they're excluded from the workforce because of background and progressing in the workforce yes and from I I don't have the data on me right now but Mm -hmm. there's data out there that shows that um, people who have they're more loyal to the workplace, less less uh, like turnover, more committed to to their jobs and to the workplace. And I think maybe because they understand how hard it is to get somewhere that folks would just entrust in you yeah. and, and and stay with it. And so um, there is this is a workforce issue. This law got passed in Colorado. The governor said he didn't want to pass any more criminal justice issues. Um um, during that year and folks was like fine because guess what this is more than a CJ issue this is a workforce issue and it passed as a workforce issue there you go you know I'm kind of curious uh, as we sit here talking about Clean Slate Initiative about the racial disparities in this issue and how these policies these Clean Slate policies impact communities of color in particular yes um, the Clean Slate policies are helping make sure that we are trying to right some of the wrongs you know Black people are more disproportionately impacted. I am a black sitting here before you. I know folks can't probably see it as a black woman. And we're more disproportionately impacted by the laws, um, especially some of these criminal justice laws. We see also that, um, I would just use you and I, if we maybe got locked up or arrested for the same issue, mm-hmm. I may end up getting two offenses versus you getting I one. I may get a diversion program you, as a white woman. Listen, I was going to say that, but yes, you even hit it on the dot. Um, you know, my case for myself, I got arrested. I went to go to the grocery store to buy groceries for my children. I was a single mom at that time. And I wrote the check, $25 over the amount that came up to a $100 check because I needed cash back to get gas in my car to get to work and get the babies to daycare. And I tell people I was operating on faith, faith that my check would not. Um, that it would float. It would float just a little, a day <laughs> past, a, a day a day over before, you know, it, it will meet with my direct deposit. I remember those writing those checks myself. Yeah, yeah you know, folks these days don't remember checks, yeah. but it was a thing called checks back in the day. <laughs> uh, not Cash App or, uh, or uh, uh, Apple Pay. And I wrote the check, and two months later, I had two knocks at the door that disrupted my children's laughter, and it was the police. And they came to arrest me because they said I had a warrant for my arrest for passing a worthless check. And what state was this in? This was in Florida. Florida. And in Florida, you know, uh, passing clean slate could go a long way because in Florida you're only allowed to clear, you're only allowed to petition to clear um, one non-conviction off your record. And Period. We, Not per year. Period. Not for 10 years, period. Period. And, I mean, that means we have close to probably over 3 million people who's prob- who could benefit getting a full record clearance yeah. just off of one non-conviction in our state. Yeah. That's, that's huge. And when I think about this story that I tell myself, that we are a country of second chances, that we believe if you do the time, it's done. But what we see in practice and reality is not the case. You know, I'm starting to believe that we are still a country of second chances. It's just our processes and our laws are so outdated. Our red tape. Yeah, and all the red tape. And we shouldn't have to go through all that red tape. So like in Louisiana, there's our laws and folks may say, well, yeah, there's laws to allow you to petition get your record clear. Yes, but it's $550 per case that I have to pay to go get my record cleared. And then I have to get a lawyer. And then I have to get all the paperwork. And I have to take off time off of work. And it's, it's expensive. It's too expensive. Some people can't even afford it. Or in Missouri, state like Missouri, the judge still has discretion. You could be eligible and done everything that you're supposed to do to get your record clear. And a judge could come say, well, I don't think you have done enough. Or I don't see... I, I, I don't think you have proved yourself before me to get your record clear. And so it is a lot of red tape. And what Clean Slate does is remove that red tape. It throws it in the trash. Yeah. So what do you want folks here in Utah to know? Because we have passed the Clean Slate initiative here. Well, the first thing I want Utah to know, if we had some sound effects, I would tell you to like to put the drum and the clap and the applause because Utah has been a leader in this 
Clean Slate movement. They're the second state to uh, pass the Clean Slate initiative. And know that you're not alone, that you're leading the way, and we're asking other states across the country to follow your lead and to pass Clean Slate. And that no matter if you're in a red state or a blue state or a purple state, this issue is common sense policies to pass, and it's people over politics. Well, before we let you go, I got to ask about some other family news that as we sit and record this was announced today. Yes. Little family news. And I I would say that uh, as a leader of the Clean Slate Initiative, um, some someone who has very much imparted in my life and been a mentor has been my husband, Desmond Mead, and the organization Florida Rights Restoration Coalition. Uh, was announced they they have been nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize. And so um, I got to be in Utah while that announcement came out. So a little emotional and exciting and also being able to just, you know, um, continue to make history with the Clean Slate Initiative. And Utah is one of those history trailblazers that's starting that work out for us. Well, congratulations to your husband and his work. And I know he can't do it without you and your support and vice versa on the Clean Slate Initiative. Please come back anytime. Let's stay in touch and keep shining a light, amplifying the work of the Clean Slate Initiative together. Thank you so much for having us. And thank you for continuing to amplify the great work of the Clean Slate Utah organization here and the National Clean Slate. Thank you so much. Sheena Mead, CEO of the Clean Slate Initiative. Check tonight's show notes for a link to the national organization, as well as the Utah chapter. Connect with them in particular if you're looking to get a clean slate here in the Beehive State. More to come, but to wrap this conversation with Sheena, it's M. Ward's Clean Slate on KRCL. When I was a younger man, I thought the pain of defeat would last forever, but now I don't know what it would take to make my heart back down. Cause I only have to wait a little while before I get my clean. RCL amplifies the work of community nonprofits like the NAACP, working to ensure a society in which all individuals have equal rights. To learn more, visit naacpogden.org or naacp-saltlakebranch.org. Support for Radioactive comes from Mark Miller Subaru and the Love Promise Community Commitment, a partnership with nonprofit organizations that aim to make the world a better place. More information about the Love Promise and Subaru products at markmillersubaru.com. This is Radioactive, and I'm Laura Jones. Just last month would have been the 50th anniversary of Roe v. Wade, the Supreme Court case legalizing abortion in America. If you've been following along with the new restrictions on reproductive rights here in Utah, you'll know that things aren't going well when it comes to freedom of choice. In fact, coming up on Wednesday, 4 o'clock at the Utah State Capitol Rotunda, Planned Parenthood Action Council of Utah, Equality Utah, the YWCA, and the ACLU of Utah will be gathering and rallying to support better access to safe, affordable, and medically sound health care in Utah. They're calling it Don't Mess With My Health Care. Check tonight's show notes, as well as rallies and resources for more details. But getting back to that Roe v. Wade anniversary last month, To commemorate the event, Planned Parenthood Action Council of Utah released a Say Abortion zine. At the event, they also assembled abortion care kits. And then they heard from researcher Diana Green Foster, author of the Turnaway Study, 
The Cost of Denying Women Access to Abortion. Shortly thereafter, I caught up with Annabelle Scheinberg of Planned Parenthood and Dr. Foster for a conversation. We start with Annabelle and a recap of the zine release. You know, we had such a great turnout, Lara. It was exciting to see the range of ages and just everybody showed up because we had a project to do. And in addition to reading the zine and checking it out, they were able to make abortion care kits for folks accessing abortion care. What's in those kits? The kids have some fuzzy socks, they have tea, they have a little chapstick, a journal, um, all kinds of snacks, granola bars, fruit. <laughs> yeah. And some resources and information about kind of, you know, how to pull down some practical support, um, to help you cover the expenses of getting an abortion, um, other kinds of support. So lots of good stuff. And as we record this, we're wrapping up week one of the general session of the Utah legislature. That requires some deep breaths, especially when it comes to reproductive rights and a bill that would retroactively change some judiciary rules that would pull the legs out from under the injunction that Planned Parenthood has on the trigger abortion ban bill. It's so complicated. It sure is. And, you know, for right now, because this trigger ban's on pause and it's been on pause since about a day and a half after the Dobbs decision, you can get abortion up to 18 weeks at Planned Parenthood Utah or at our independent clinic, Wasatch Women's. And there are a lot of people who'd like to change that. So we have been fighting hard against HJR2 since day one of the session when it was assigned to the House Judiciary Committee. Part of the event and the release of the Say Abortion zine was taking time to join a webinar online with our other guest today, and that is Dr. Diana Green Foster, author of The Turnaway Study. There's a longer title to that that explains more of how you dig into this data. Can you give us a brief primer on the Turnaway Study for folks that are unfamiliar? Sure, I'd love to. Um, this is a study that was really aimed to look at the consequences of abortion uh, and who do you compare people who have abortions to if you want to know whether, for example, abortion harms women. Well, it has to be people who were equally wanting an abortion but couldn't get one. And at the time, we were really addressing this question, does abortion hurt women? And we had no idea how incredibly relevant it was going to turn out to be because we started it in 2008, started collecting data, and we didn't know that Dobbs would happen and so many states would ban abortion. So right when we did this study, um, there were fewer people unable to get wanted abortions. And unfortunately, now it's very likely to be many tens of thousands. So your book, The Turnaway Study, The Cost of Denying Women Access to Abortion, there's the cost of the woman herself. But what about the rest of the community? What about our country? This seems to get at the heart of democracy, at autonomy. Yeah, I think that people have narrowly considered this as a political topic and don't understand the human experience of being pregnant when you don't want to be pregnant. And then all the ripple effects on women's lives, on their partners, on their existing children, um, on their chance at having subsequent children under better circumstances. So it's really about motherhood and parenthood and being able to participate in our society, being able to um, you know, achieve one's life uh, aspirations. So 10 years, a thousand women that you followed. Give us some kind of top lines that uh, conclusions you were able to draw. Yeah. So the most immediate was that we found no evidence that abortion harms women's mental health. In fact, women who were denied abortions had worse mental health, uh, higher anxiety, lower self-esteem, in the long run, they look similar in terms of mental health, but not at all similar in terms of physical health and economic well-being and in other life uh, ambitions. So, for example, um, many people don't realize how dangerous uh, pregnancy can be and how dangerous childbirth is, especially um, I think we just take it for granted that if someone wants to be a mother, they're, they're willing to go through all of the, the risk and when someone doesn't want to be a parent, um, all of that is um, really underappreciated. And the idea that people would just go through pregnancy, give birth, and place a child for adoption really is callous to the serious physical risks of pregnancy. Given what you study and your focus, I I'm curious because I've seen these stories that 
The United States of America, as a developed country, is one of the few that has seen maternal mortality rates go up in recent years. And can you draw some conclusions or or connect the dots to this topic as well? Yeah. It, um, uh, Annabelle was just telling me about a new study that showed that the states that ban abortion also are the ones with the highest levels of maternal morbidity and mortality. So it's there's a consistent – we know how to provide health care and we know how to provide a social safety net and we aren't committed to doing it. So the same – you know, forces that um, argue for abortion bans, actually, you would think they would be very in favor of supporting mothers, but that unfortunately is not the case. And the, it's the same states with abortion bans are those with the worst policies around reproductive health. In reading the book, your book, The Turn Away Study, The Cost of Denying Women Access to Abortion. Gloria Steinem had this blurb before you. If you read only one book about democracy, The Turn Away <coughs> Study should be it. Why? Because without the power to make decisions about our own bodies, there is no democracy. And that just um, saying it out loud again gives me chills. And then also at the same time, recalling that during COVID, the My Body, My Choice chant was repurposed for folks who didn't want to wear a mask or take a vaccine. And I guess I'm winding myself up here, Doc. <laughs> Do you have some some hopes some, out of these conclusions or out of this data that you would like to see injected into the public discourse? Yeah, the whole idea of the study now is to get the data out there so that pe- policymakers in this new Dobbs era, uh, the decision moves to the state, state legislators, state judges need to decide about this. And I want them to have the data. I want them to know that if they deny people access to abortion, there are costs to women's health, to children's development, to the economic security of families, to people's chance at finding more stable and secure uh, uh, livelihoods and homes. So there's, it's a, it's a, you know, not a trivial impact for the people who are pregnant when they don't want to be long range consequences and and they shouldn't just decide this ideologically they really need to look at the empirical data and understand what the harms are for people when you take away this very basic choice about when and whether to have kids you know you said just a minute ago that there is no data showing worsening depression etc for a woman who has had an abortion yet i feel like that now myth, is used for some of the things that in particular Utah Annabelle has, which is forcing women to look at sonograms, et cetera, to make them feel guilty in anticipation, Annabelle. So this data, it sounds like, first of all, we need a book club. Yes. Get the book into folks' hands and then go talk to our lawmakers, Annabelle. Guess what? Uh, Diana, during the pandemic, I remember Diana did a webinar with the King's English talking about this book, and she said it was one of the hugest um, book selling op- uh, events that she's had. So there are several people in Utah with this book. <laughs> right. <laughs> or the King's English has a lot yeah. of them. We're not sure. Okay. Um, so we think a lot of people might have this book. I love the idea of a book group. And it's so important to put it in context that Utah has already made it very clear how the state feels about abortion. And also in terms of imposing barriers and people trying to access this kind of health care. Right. So people have to take state required education modules. They've got to wait 72 hours. They've got to do a face to face visit prior to the actual health care visit. There's many, many uh, indications. It's challenging for providers to provide this kind of care. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's certain places when where you can provide this kind of care. Right. Very limited what hospitals can provide. So, again, the context in which this ban is being imposed is, a, is important to notice uh, and to call out um, folks. And that's why, you know, again, going back to the zine, right, we got to break through some of that stigma and silence and shame that people experience around this very common health procedure, um, right? Yeah. So nationally, one in three or one in four people, it sort of hovers it's in between, get an abortion. It's really common. Yeah. And here we are trying to take that away. And that stigma around it for uh, people who get pregnant, for women, um, 
the the shame of not being able to talk about it leads to more disinformation or if i'm kind inaccurate information about what is really going on? And now we have, with Dr. Diana Green Foster's book, The Turnaway Study, The Cost of Denying Women Access to Abortion, we have facts. We have data, Annabelle. Which is so powerful when we get to have those one-on-one conversations with legislators where we can really provide information. Because these conversations don't happen that much, a lot of people are misinformed. They think adoption is a, an option that lots of pregnant people want when, if you look at the data from the turnaway study, it was rarely chosen, right? People were more likely to continue their pregnancy by far than to use adoption. So it's not that there aren't options for people, but we also, having data to say this is what people um, chose in these situations really helps have a more fact-based conversation. And it allows you to also go into other policies, pay equity, child care, right, um, family leave, things that we know are so lacking in terms of support, support for a person who is considering a pregnancy. Diana, can you just go over that information about adoption and abortion and clarify for it? So um, folks seeking abortions, they're not considering adoption, it sounds like. That's not what it's about for them. Yeah, we asked people whether they considered adoption, and certainly everyone had heard of the option. So it's not that they didn't know about it, but very few people, when they they had chosen abortion, they wanted to end the pregnancy, they didn't want to continue to be pregnant, they didn't want to make a baby right then. And when they were unable to get an abortion, the vast majority, over 90%, chose to parent the child. And when we ask them why, they, you know, they say things like adoption is not for me or I think it would be too hard or I wouldn't want a child of mine out in the world where I couldn't take care of it. So it's, you know, the, um, there may be people who become pregnant and know in, immediately that adoption is the right thing for them. Um, and we didn't have those people in the study. We had people who wanted an abortion. And when you want an abortion, adoption is not a not a close second choice. And can we bust a few myths about a woman's body is just built to give birth? I mean, giving birth is a huge, significant medical event that has long-lasting ramifications. Yeah, so in our study, two women actually died from ch- after childbirth. No women died from abortion. Um, and it really shows just how serious. It's a stress test on every organ system pregnancy is. Um, and uh, it wasn't just the end of pregnancy, childbirth that was the risk. We actually saw worse physical health that lasted for years. So higher rates of hypertension, more chronic pain, um, and just lower overall self-rated health for people who were denied an abortion and gave birth compared to people who got an abortion. So I think it's it's you know not a tri- <laughs> so absurd to have to say not a trivial thing to be pregnant and give birth. Yeah. So what happens next? Are you going to continue to follow this data through all the cohorts years? No, we have stopped with the turnaway study. We did a series of really beautiful interviews with women from the studies. They could tell their story in their own words, and we wouldn't just have statistics. So in the book, um, we have 10 of those women's stories. But um, unfortunately, I'm having to start a new study for the consequences of Dobbs. So what we're doing is recruiting the last people served in their state before a ban took effect and also recruiting people who um, sought abortion care after that ban and therefore had to either travel out of state, circumvent their state laws by uh, maybe ordering pills online um, or uh, trying something more dangerous and also people who um, run out of options and carry the pregnancy to term. So that's what I'm doing now is launching a new study. And when will that be ready to talk about? Because I can't wait to have you back. <laughs> I'd love to come back. To, can I come back to Utah before I am done with absolutely, that? <laughs> absolutely. Because it's going to be a little bit of time. <laughs> You're just getting it off the ground. Yes, I'm getting it and Well, we definitely want to follow it. So thank you so much. Is there a way for folks to keep in touch with you or perhaps offer their story in this new study? Um, I'm... There are, um, you can go to uh, Answer, A-N-S-I-R-H. If you Google UCSF Answer, you can see a slew of studies we're doing. We're not actually soliciting people to tell our story. 
Um, we're trying when we recruit people, we try and do it in a way that um, it isn't people who are politically motivated to tell or especially open about it. We really want to recruit. Um, we're very careful to try and get yeah. a representative sample. So I wish I could just take the juiciest stories that people want to share with me, but um, <laughs> that's not what I'm supposed to do. And so I don't do okay. that. Well, we'll put it in the show notes. So <laughs> folks want to check it out. They can yes. see it for themselves. Thank you so much for stopping by KRCL while you're here in Utah. Thank you. It's a joy to see your shop. And Annabelle, where can people get more details about getting engaged with Planned Parenthood Action Council and the Beehive training you do? They can go to ppacutah.org, ppacutah.org, or they can follow us on Instagram at ppacutah. Those are the best ways to reach out. Uh, if you like email, you can email engagement at ppau.org. Annabelle Scheinberg of the Planned Parenthood Action Council of Utah and Dr. Diana Green Foster, author of The Turnaway Study, The Cost of Denying Women Access to Abortion. Check tonight's show notes for a link to Dr. Foster's book to Planned Parenthood Action Council of Utah and also that rally I told you about earlier coming up this Wednesday, 4 p.m., the Utah State Capitol Rotunda, Don't Mess With My Health Care, Supporting Better Access to Safe, Affordable, and Medically Sound Health Care in Utah. And this is also where I remind you that it's important to vote, so make sure your voter registration is up to date, folks. Register your friends. It matters who you vote for. And that brings us to Wax Taylor, a woman's voice on KRCL. We the Presidents, a conversation with author Ron Gruner up next. everyone who donated to KRCL last year. Tax receipts for 2022 have gone out, but if you would like a digital version of your donation record, you can download one through your KRCL Connect account, log in or sign up under the support tab at krcl.org. As always, email any questions you may have to members at krcl.org. Well, default taxes, default tyranny. Welcome back to a President's Day edition of Radioactive on KRCL 90.9. I'm Laura Jones, and still to come tonight at 7 o'clock, it's Democracy Now!, followed by some red, white, and blues with Brian Kelman at 8, Michelle's Night Train at 10.30, and John Florence kicking off a brand new day at 6 a.m. You can hear the last two weeks of any show when you listen on demand at krcl.org. You'll find that under the Programs tab. To close out our President's Day show... I'm going back a year to President's Day 2022 and a conversation I had with author Ron Gruner about his then new book, We the Presidents, How American Presidents Shaped the Last Century. I recently had a chance to talk with Ron Gruner. He's a former tech CEO who founded, started and sold three companies over the course of his career. And given his background, he wanted to take a look at the economic policies of those who have occupied the Oval Office from Harding to Trump. And the result is his new book, We the Presidents, How American Presidents Shaped the Last Century. To start our conversation, I asked him to share a little bit more background on himself. There were 
two aspects of my life that I think influenced the book. And the, the first is where I was born and where I worked. And I was born in, and raised in Oklahoma, uh, one of the reddest of the red states. And being in computers and loving computers, uh, even in high school, I uh, moved to Massachusetts when I was 21 years old, one of the bluest of the blue states. So I have friends and acquaintances and family that live in both areas. And uh, oftentimes their views are very, very different uh, politically and economically. And that's influenced my thoughts. Uh, also, having been an engineer, I've tried to look at issues as uh, I, I tried to, at least as objectively and factually as possible and, and keep uh, ideology and, and emotion out of issues. That's a little bit about my background. Very analytical, it sounds like. And so I'm curious how you applied that lens to your book, We the Presidents, How American Presidents Shaped the Last Century. And you write in the book that aside from maybe an event during Reagan's run and one during Obama's, again, balancing there, I think, um, you're not <laughs> not been very involved in politics. Well, I voted uh, every year. I, I, I was eligible to vote in 1968, and I, I voted in every election. But uh, I have pro- I have crossed the aisle probably uh, as often in the left to the left to, as to the right. So, as my dad used to say back in the 50s, uh, I vote for the man, not the party. And I've uh, remembered that, and I've tried to do that. And also in your book, you write that you got interested in presidential history the year you retired, 2015. And let me just read from your book here. It was a period when American politics was transitioning from merely polarized to openly tribal. And I don't think we're much better here in 2022, Ron. I think we're probably uh, probably quite a bit worse than we were in 2015. They were shocking in 2015, but I think today it's uh, it's far, far worse, unfortunately. One of the things I really appreciate your book about your book is the lens you place on the presidents and the tools in the book to analyze it. Folks, there's a great uh, couple of appendices in the back um, on key economic indicators, personal income adjusted to $2020 and U.S. presidential election results. And I think that's part of what we're getting bombarded with in our current political discourse is you have to be an expert. You have to be able to pull up the data and cite it and notate it in your over-the-fence conversations, and it's driving me nuts. Here's a question for you, Ron. Can the president really impact gas prices? You focus an economic lens on presidential history. And this is one I hear over and over when the president, when the Oval Office changes political parties, is they're either good or bad for gas prices. And I feel like that's a really insulting uh, conversation that politicians direct at us as a weapon um, the whole gas price conversation and presidential responsibility. Well, that that is so true. Obviously, politics is about gaining an advantage. And when something goes wrong, uh, uh, politicians are going to blame the other side no matter what. That's just the way it is, unfortunately. Uh, can presidents influence gas prices? Uh, really not in the short term very much. In the long term, absolutely. Uh, President Carter uh, pioneered the notion of conservation, energy conservation in 1978 after energy prices had climbed to 1.2% per year for decades. And uh, today, uh, energy consumption per capita is down 15% from where uh, Carter was in 78. So that had a huge influence on gas prices. Now, gas prices have jumped up almost a dollar in the last, as you know, uh, three to six months. Uh, that's largely, I think, due to people kind of coming out of their shells, traveling more, and, uh, and just the effects of supply side issues primarily. Uh, can you blame that on the current president? Most of it you probably cannot, perhaps a little bit, but not not the majority of that gas price increase. So do you have a favorite president? Well, um, writing a biography about presidents is about like, um, and, and asking a question like that is about asking, do you have a favorite child? <laughs> but uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to dodge that question. I would say if I had to pick one out of the 17 I wrote over, it would be Harry Truman. Why? I, I, well, I have a great amount of respect for Harry Truman. He, uh, he was only vice president for 82 days when... Franklin Roosevelt died, and Roosevelt had really had not brought him into any of the things he was working on in terms of managing the end of the war, and Stoney, uh, uh, Truman knew nothing about the atomic bomb. So he was faced with ending World War II, the decision to drop the bomb, how to handle the growing uh, Cold War, the Soviet threat, what to do uh, with Israel uh, as an independent nation or not to support that. He had the Korean War. Uh, he had a, just a number of issues he had to deal with. He was unprepared for that, and he, uh, I think, all in all, did a did a very good job. The other thing about Truman I admire about is he left the presidency, the least popular president in, a, in modern history. Uh, he had fired General Douglas MacArthur because MacArthur wanted to go into China, perhaps even with nuclear weapons, and he fired him for that. And 
people loved MacArthur, and and they really uh, made uh, Truman very very popular. And, and uh, but Truman stood by his guns, and uh, today he's respected as one of the top presidents. Typically you know, in the top 10 for sure. So your lens on the presidency is really one about economics, uh, personal income, income equality. And I'd love to get your take on the inequality that I feel like we're experiencing right now as compared to the Gilded Age, but also taxation. So when you take that lens, um, place that lens on the Oval Office, um, what are some patterns that uh, emerge for you? Well, one of the... uh the realizations I had writing this book, uh, I don't know if you'd call it quite a pattern, but was the observation that there's really no single universal economic policy. Like today you have uh, politicians that say supply side economics is the only answer. You have politicians that say Keynesian economics or what we call demand side economics is the only answer. You have monetarists. Those are all just tools in a big uh, toolbox. It's like a carpenter saying, I only use hammers or I only use a wrench. Economists really should be using all of those tools. And because of politics, they've become quite partisan in that regard. And that's one of the kind of the epiphanies I had writing this book, that economics should not be politicized, but it has been, unfortunately. Well, yeah, because that's how I'm judging my life is my pocketbook, by and large, right? Am I doing okay in the world? And then that gets weaponized in the political circus. So you were a CEO, three companies, successful companies. Um, so presidential politics could, in one way, really affect you as a CEO over the course of your career. Did you look at it that way as it was happening or in retrospect, having written this I think book? primarily, to be honest with you, in retrospect, primarily, uh, you know, when I was running my companies, I was so focused on the, the issues of running the company, the competition, the, the technology issues. Uh, that was what the key factors were. But it did affect us. The first company I started uh, with two other uh, co-founders, uh, Alliant Computer Systems, in the early 80s was really probably made possible because of Carter's uh, cuts on capital gains taxes from 39% to 28%. He cut those in the late 1970s. He gets almost no credit for that. Reagan gets credit for tax cuts, but Carter really got that bandwagon rolling and that affected our ability to raise money and uh, start that first company. How did it affect your next company, shareholder.com and Sky Analytics? Can you well, say, a, say uh, well, that there were things that presidents did or didn't do that made it easier for you as a, as a, as a CEO? Well, in, in the case of Shelter.com, uh, which uh, I started in the early 1990s and sold to uh, the NASDAQ stock market in 2006, uh, the president and, and the government uh, helped us in that regard. And they, they passed um, something called, um, oh, the name escapes me now. Anyway, they basically made it illegal to have conference calls with public companies where only uh, a security analysts would sit in and they would trade stocks during the conference call and the public who owned stocks also were excluded from that. And they basically passed legislation in the 1998 timeframe under President Clinton that made that illegal. And that basically, I think, made uh, the stock a much, much fairer marketplace and, and helped my company, Sheraldo.com, tremendously. Wow. Insider trading on steroids. Oh, insider trading was rampant, even during a conference call. Wow. And then Sky Analytics, your last company? Sky Analytics, um, I don't know if uh, I can point to uh, anything where the uh, president or the government uh, directly affected that. Other than, uh, I have to be frank, we, we probably benefited um, in some respects from uh, the financial crash of 2008 because there's incredible litigation flowing around in all kinds of litigation, uh, all kinds of areas against people. And uh, the focus of Sky Analytics was to provide companies with ways of managing their legal costs. And... Uh, uh, of course, their, their legal costs were skyrocketing after 2008. Talking with Ron Gruner, author of We the Presidents, How American Presidents Shaped the Last Century. And in the book, Ron, you discuss early American tax rebellions from the Boston Tea Party to Shays Rebellion to the Whiskey Rebellion and their effect on American tax policy. Taking that lens of history, focus it on what's going on right now for us and the current economic debate. Um, there's the, the great resignation that some are talking about um, uh, that we're going through seeing people quit their jobs or not come back after COVID. Um, do you have any an analysis based on history on what we're going through right now? Well, um, I think the best analysis I would give you on that is the, the income inequality we've seen that's evolved over the last 50 years. The middle class and the lower 20% of workers had their income peak in 1968. 
1968, the minimum wage was approximately $1.60, but in 2020 dollars was almost $12 per hour in 1968. Today, the minimum wage is $7.25. That's a 38% pay cut. And for a family of four, where you've got one spouse working full-time and another spouse working half-time, in 1968, that family in, in, in 2020 dollars was making almost $35,000. They, they were comfortably in the lower middle class. They were well above the poverty level. Today, that same family working the same way is below the poverty level by four or $5,000 and to survive have to get food stamps and other aid from the government. That's one of the reasons social costs have gone up so much is because wages have gone down so much and the people working just as hard as they did in 68 are making much less money. Did it surprise you then, as you started to look at presidential history from an economic lens, that Donald Trump was so successful, a billionaire on, according to him, about uh, who, who one of his campaign slogans when he ran, first ran was, what do you got to lose in appealing to folks that weren't at his country club or his golf clubs? Well, I think he was right about that. I think uh, the people he was talking to, the people I mentioned, the lower middle class and uh, the people working uh, in the bottom 20% of the income brackets, they had little, they have very little to lose because for 50 years, their concerns had been largely ignored. And he made that a political issue. He made that a campaign issue. And up until 2020, uh, the pandemic, when the pandemic hit, uh, uh, Incomes were rising for the middle class and the, uh, the lower classes quite nicely. He delivered on that. So in, in looking at presidents through history, uh, what is the direction we should be headed? Or are there lessons that you think we should be aware of as we choose our leaders from an economic lens? Well, there's always the debate uh, about do you pick a president based on his or her character or his or her policies. And I personally feel that right approach is to pick it on character. Your character ultimately determines the policies of the president, if not in the short term, in the long term. And I think uh, if I were to urge people to think about who they vote for, pick the person first and the person's character first, and then pick the policies. The policies are very short change. So that's a lesson I think, uh, if I'm presumptuous, I think we Americans need to learn. We don't seem to learn, though. I'm looking at uh, your book, and slogan patterns are something that you tracked across different presidencies. From the 1920s, when Warren G. Harding campaigned on America First, then Reagan, Let's Make America Great Again, and then Donald Trump, Make America Great Again. These slogans and rah-rah, this team, that team, I think gets in the way of us seeing clearly, especially when it comes to economic policy. And we've had enough time now to say whether supply side or demand side works and under what circumstances. So um, you know, for the average person, myself included, who doesn't have an academic economics degree, uh, what are your recommendations for, besides reading your book, <laughs> to get educated, <laughs> but to, to understand it and, and divorce our, our knowledge of, 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 uh, from party and look at policies? Well, uh you have to look at uh, different situations require different policies. And uh, uh, supply side economics worked very well during the 1920s, for example, uh, when uh, uh, Treasury Secretary Andrew Mellon uh, first developed the idea of cutting taxes to raise revenues and stimulate the economy. That worked very well. It failed miserably under Herbert Hoover's administration in the early 1930s, trying to fight, uh, find, trying to fight the depression. Um, so I think what Americans need to do is they have to look at the current situation and ask themselves, well, what's the current, po what's the best policy? In 2008, when you had the financial collapse, demand collapsed. People weren't buying, they weren't consuming, uh, factory uh, companies were not investing in factories. So stimulating the economy, and if the government had to do that, as Franklin Roosevelt did, was necessary. And so taking an ideology where big government's always, always bad is just simply wrong. It, it failed during Her Herbert Hoover's time. Roosevelt's approach worked well. Now, Roosevelt's approach may not have worked well during the Clinton years and the dot-com boom. It wasn't needed. All right. So let's take a look at where we are now then, Ron, and economic policy coming through COVID and the checks that Americans got. And then the political backlash about folks aren't working because they're getting money. So a lot of red controlled states, Utah included, cut those payments off early. And you didn't see this huge rebound. So the politis politicization of poverty, I think, is something that's going on, too. Well, that's true. I think... Uh 
the fact that people have more money in their pockets, uh, you can consider that good or bad. I actually think that's good. And the fact that people for the for many, many people for the first time in their lives actually had an option. Do I want to take some time and think what I want to do with my life? I consider that a positive. And so and people are doing that. What that means for the long term and in terms of inflation, uh, th that's hard to say. But the biggest concern I've got about the current situation is the explosion of the, uh, the national debt. Uh, we've been ignoring that issue since uh, President Clinton left the presidency in 2000. And the national, as you know, that had been declining for four years, the last four years of the 1990s under President Clinton, to his credit. Uh, and since then, it's been climbing like a skyrocket, particularly the last few years um, under, uh, well, actually under President Trump and, of course, during the pandemic. And I'm quite worried that that's going to come back and, and be a major, major issue someday for the United States, uh, something as serious or more serious than the 2008 financial collapse, when, when interest rates go up to 5 6 7%, and financing that debt's going to be a huge, huge problem for us in America. So any lessons from the Depression under the, the presidency there, under the 2008 real estate collapse there, that we should be applying here? Have we learned anything in terms of how policy is being, economic policy is being constructed and implemented? The best economic policy looks at the long term, not the short term. And politics is focused on the short term. So that's Infuriating. That's why our economic policies have a very short-term focus. And uh, if uh, if you were to have, for example, maybe I'm getting out of my uh, my area of expertise here, but if, for example, if we had term limits in Congress, where basically uh, our Congress uh, people on both the Senate and the House can think about the long term, because they're not going to be in Congress the next 30 years, they're going to be in Congress for six to 12 years at most. They can say, okay, what's the best thing to do? Because I'm not running again. Uh, might be at one approach. And I guess if I would propose one single thing to fix the short-term thinking we have in America would be term limits. And the second thing might be to take all the money out of politics. How do we do that, though, since money is free speech and corporations are people? Well, I'm not sure. I know legally corporations are people, but uh, that just depends on what Supreme Court you're talking to, I guess. <laughs> Well, okay, wave your magic wand then for me and tell me uh, what you would do were you president. Oh, Laura, that's that a question that is uh, way out of my pay grade. Um, <laughs> okay, well, let me ask grade. you this then. Uh, what about the idea of a universal basic income? What do you think of that? Applying what you've learned through this examination of the Oval Office and economic policy, the ups and downs of our economy, and what we've experienced during the pandemic with those uh, stimulus checks going out, and looking to the future and where work is headed as technology continues to expand and do things for us, what about a UBI? Well, that's an excellent question. Uh by the, the notion of a universal basic income is not new. That was proposed by many people uh, during the, uh, the 1930s, during the Great Depression. I talk about that, devote quite a bit in the, the Roosevelt chapter about that, about the need for uh, universal basic income, or the, at least the demand for it. Uh, the big issue is going to be automation. Uh, today, uh, you know, being in a computer business, uh, when I first started in the, in the 60s and 70s, a semiconductor facility, uh, making uh, microchips employed hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of people making those chips. Today, that's all automated. And that can be done, uh, I don't know the exact number, with a few dozen people. Yet and, that, that, yeah. that, that plant for its shareholders and, and for the company is generating billions of dollars in revenue and profits with a very, very small labor force. So what do you do with the people that are no longer working in that semiconductor facility? And that's an issue society is going to have to deal with. I don't know if universal basic income is the answer. I don't know what the answer is, but it's going to be an issue, and it's going to be driven by automation. Well, Ron, thank you so much for this great book. Uh, uh, getting this into the hands of the people to understand the presidency through this lens, I think, is crucial, not to mention the tools that you supply in the book for folks to study and analyze it themselves. So now I have one last question, and it's another magic wand question. And that's okay. about looking ahead to future presidents and what you think um, would be a successful economic platform that could bring us together. Well, uh, any future president that's going to uh, invoke a successful economic platform. It's going to have to be a very, very good communicator because we're going to have to make some very difficult decisions. 
And we may well have to raise taxes, may have to raise taxes significantly to begin to pay off that federal debt. And Eisenhower did that. He basically said, I'm not going to I'm not going to cut taxes because we have a war debt to pay and we've got to continue paying those taxes to get that war debt down. And people respected Eisenhower for that. And it may be somebody like an Eisenhower who has to come in and give us our bitter medicine and explain why we have to take that medicine based on our black policies of the prior you know, three or four decades. Uh, that's the president we need, one that can communicate and tell us what needs to be done, not what we want to hear. Ron Gruner, author of We the Presidents, How American Presidents Shaped the Last Century. Check tonight's show notes for a link to that book, as well as all of our other guests on this President's Day edition of Radioactive. Tomorrow night on the show, it's Roundtable Tuesday with Rashawn Leak and me. I'm Laura Jones. We've got a round of Music Meets Activism with Betty Sawyer of Project Success Coalition and the Ogden NAACP. Plus, we'll check in with the League of Women Voters of Utah and Project Homeless Connect is back. Questions, comments, suggestions, send me an email, radioactive at krcl.org. And thank you for plugging into your community with Radioactive right here on KRCL 90.9. Have a great night, everybody.